read from the book of Amos, chapter 6 and verse 1. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Woe to you who are at ease in Zion and trust in Mount Samaria, notable persons in the chief nation to whom the house of Israel comes. I feel like I need to spend a moment before we turn our attention to Amos, the sixth chapter, in justifying why I have chosen an Old Testament text to draw principles for those of us who are living in the New Testament era. And I hope that that will be obvious in just a moment as to why I have chosen Amos 6 and verse 1 as our text, other, other than the fact that the title of my lesson comes from this actual verse. Are you bored with Christianity? Has your worship to God become a matter of let's go turn on the lights and sing a few songs, sit through another sermon, and let's sweep up, turn off the lights, and go home again, and then rinse and repeat a week later? I'm talking to more and more of my what I feel like are sincere and conscientious fellow Christians who are using this kind of phrase in their discussions of the Christian life. Brother Randy, I feel like I'm just going through the motions. I wonder tonight, do you feel like you're just going through the motions? I'm talking to more and more of my fellow ministers who are very seriously considering leaving the successful and I use that term in a guarded sort of way, works that they are currently engaged in, selling their houses, pulling their children out of schools in which they have been ensconced for a number of years, and going and preaching the gospel to people in third world countries where, as using their terminology, people really want to hear the gospel. And you know that because of the way that they react and respond to it. I'm tired of playing church. I'm tired of going through the motions. And if you feel like that right now, and if there have been any times in your life in a cyclical sort of way where what I have just described is anything similar to what you have experienced, then you are in good company. And I hope to not only identify the problem tonight, but to suggest some potential cures, some solutions for that problem, because it is a problem. It's very easy for us in the church to become so involved in the particulars, the minutia, that we become, find ourselves majoring in minors and minoring in majors, and we spend our time in business meetings talking about do we do LED lights, what color should the carpet be, should we do away with our songbooks entirely, and what time should we meet, and we've forgotten that there's a world that's lost in sin who needs to hear the blessed news of the gospel and if I've read the Old Testament correctly, there were times in the Old Testament under both the patriarchs and under the law of Moses when God would call judges and then prophets to come and to call the people back out of their spiritual lethargy, out of that going through the motion sort of cycle that they had found themselves in. And Amos chapters 5 and 6 is just one of those places. If you go back and if you got your Bible open, if you don't, please open it. 
You'll see that in chapter 5 is really the foundation for where our upon which our text rests in chapter 6 and verse 1. Because chapter 5 verse 2 describes the problem in ancient Israel. This is verses, chapters 5 and 6 really are the continuation of a divine lament for fallen Israel. So chapter 5 verse 2 describes the problem. Verse 6 of the same chapter gives the solution. Verses 10 through 15 give their characteristics. That is, here's how you can define this nation of Israel who has lost its way spiritually, and they might as well be wandering in the wilderness again. Verses 6 through 18 describes the day of the Lord. Verses 21 through 27 talks about God's attitude toward the people. Is God pleased with us? Is God displeased? And then we get to chapter 6. And the first two verses really are the payoff, the summation of what's taking place in chapter 5. Chapter 6, verse 1 contains the warning. And it is, there's no other word that I know to use than a warning to Zion and Samaria. And then chapter 3 and following explains the reasons for their ease and complacency. Begins to explain to us why in verse 1 that the writer there, Amos, tells them, Woe unto you that are at ease in Zion. Let's take that for a moment and translate it into our world and our cultural situation and where we are in these United States of America as the church of our Lord. Did you know that we presently live in a nation that comprises only 6% of the world's population but controls over well over 50% of the world's wealth? And here's how we're dispersing that great wealth in this, our nation. $400 million a year are spent on dog food. Compare that with only $350 million a year are spent on world missions. And then there's $22 billion, that's billion with a B, that are spent on alcoholic beverages in our country. 90% of all church funds are used in bringing the gospel to the 9% of us in the world that speak English. American members of Churches of Christ give an average of some 14 cents a week to carry the gospel to those who are not in our area. There are three million cities, towns, and villages around the world that do not have the gospel of Jesus Christ nor a gospel preacher to present that gospel to them. Only 65% of the world's population has ever heard the name Jesus. Think about that, church. Only 65% has heard the name Jesus compared to 87% of the world that is more than familiar with the term Coca-Cola. You see, even the most superficially observant among us would not debate that we are living in an age in which God's people, surely we must acknowledge, are at ease in Zion. And we can come into an air-conditioned church building and we can sit and we can sing beautiful songs and, and we can sing them with meaning because we really do mean what we're singing and what we're saying and what we're attempting to live. But have we lost sight of our mission? Have we lost sight of what God wants us to do? And if, if you were to ask many church members, they would say, well, it's to come in and to sing these songs and pray these prayers and, and listen to these sermons and then come back and do them again. No, that's not what we're about. What we're doing here is to express our deep appreciation, our sincere gratitude for what God has done for us and what he promises to do for us in the future. But if we don't leave here with a burning passion to share that message and that hope with those around us, once we leave the confines of this church building, dear friends, we are at ease in Zion, and we've forgotten why we're here. Because not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, God has to periodically call his people back to the way. 
We've never had it so good, materially speaking, in this nation in which we live. And I think every one of us would, would acknowledge that we have been blessed in a material way. But nor have we been so ostensibly spiritually indifferent. The enthusiastic, evangelistic dynamism of the first century world... As we read the first few chapters of the book of Acts and we see that church on fire for the Lord and even when they're persecuted in Jerusalem, Acts 8, 4 says, when they were dispersed because of that persecution, rather than shutting them up, the Bible says they went everywhere preaching the word. Nothing could put out the fire and the fervor in the hearts of those men and women because they had, many of them had seen Christ, had walked with him, had heard him speak, had seen his miracles. But here we are 2,000 years later, and we're trying to carry on a movement. And as we talked about two weeks ago, Christianity really is intended by God to be a movement. It must not be a monument, and it certainly must not be a mausoleum. It must continue to be a movement, or else we are not the church that God intended for us to be, and He's not, and we're not the church that he died for and, and purchased with his own precious blood. But so often... And sometimes people are courageous enough to say it out loud. What's the problem? We want to know. It's only church. And we for, seem to have forgotten what happened to Golgotha in AD 33. Paul's challenge to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verses 14 and following, I think is a challenge that's needed by the church today. And I want to share it with you just quickly. Awake you who sleep. Does this sound familiar? He's not, this is not Reveille. This is not Paul going around to the various barracks of the men and women in Ephesus and trying to get them up in time for breakfast. This is a spiritual wake-up call. Awake thou that sleeps and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. The judgment of the Lord is closer than it's ever been. If we're going to carry the gospel to Ephesus, it has to be now. But the only way that we're ever going to accomplish that successfully is if we wake up first and that's what he's calling them to allow me to share some characteristics of those who are at ease in Zion and I'm not saying this is an indictment on anyone here I think this is a congregation filled with some sincere and good-hearted people so don't take it that way but take it as a wake-up call for each of us that's necessary from time to time for us to do this kind of collective as well as individual spiritual inventory to see whether we really are standing as God would have us to stand and whether we really are making a difference in a world of darkness that so desperately needs the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And characteristic number one is what we've been already talking about. A congregation or a church universal that has, has become at ease in Zion is one that has forgotten its primary mission. As one brother I remember said in a church growth workshop that I was in probably close to 40 years ago now, he said, uh, we've got to remember what we're in business for. And then he used the illustration of going to various stores, places of business in the town where he lived in the outskirts of Atlanta at the time, and how that they didn't have the slightest intention of ever trying to serve him and wait on him, and he walked out after 20 minutes not finding what he went there for and not getting any assistance at all, and he came out with, I think, the justified conclusion, this is a place that has forgotten what they're in business for. They've forgotten that it's people who come in and spend their money that keep them in business, and if we're not careful as a church, we can also forget what we're in business for. Have you ever felt that people who grow up in the church that we don't appreciate it. 
and by that I mean both salvation and the fellowship of God's people near as much as those who are new converts. Don't you love to see new converts? And how that they come out of the baptistry, most of them at least, who are just bursting with enthusiasm and they can't wait to get dried off and put their street clothes back on so that they can go and tell someone else what they've found. I think most of us could testify to the fervor and the zeal of new converts as compared to those who've been in the church for a few years whose, whose enthusiasm and fervor have, has waned and sometimes died. My friend who preaches over in Texas, Harold Taylor, one time said in a lecture in which I was, was there in the audience, said, in, and I'm quoting Harold as best I can, one of the critical keys, he said, to keeping new converts enthusiastic and evangelistic is, here's where I'm quoting, keep them away from the other members. And Harold was only half joking. If we can keep them away from those whose fervor and enthusiasm has died, then we may have a force to be reckoned with. What's wrong? Why are so many of us regressing spiritually rather than making spiritual progress and maturing in Christ. And, and these things mean more and more to us as the years pass. I think it's the same problem that John saw in both Ephesus and Laodicea. And you can read about that in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And we're going to make a couple of references to some verses in those chapters in just a moment. But let me say that, set the stage by saying we know very little about the beginning of the church at Laodicea. But we know a great deal about how things started in Ephesus because we can go over and read Acts 18 and 19. And from reading those two chapters, you've got, you've got most of the blanks filled in on how the church started in the city of Ephesus. And we need to know. We need to know how far Ephesus went in their spiritual regression. Sadly, uh, an object lesson on what not to do. But 40 years before John wrote the book of Revelation... And pen one of those seven letters to the churches in Asia, one of them to the Ephesus congregation. Forty years before he ever wrote that book, the church at Ephesus was one of the most powerful forces for the spread of Christianity in western Turkey. I mean, things were flaming in Ephesus. They were a hotbed of spiritual fervor and excitement. From Ephesus, there were other churches that were planted. The pagan world was shaken from its grip on the masses, which had been a grip, a tenacious hold on the world for so long. And the force of the gospel in the hands and on the lips of those Ephesian Christians had shaken that world so that they were beginning to set the captives free. Marvelous miracles were taking place in Ephesus. The Lord's church was growing and glowing with life and vitality. But by the time, and I hate to include that word, but... But by the time John penned the book of Revelation, 40 years later, the church in Ephesus had not, only, had not only peaked, but they were now in obvious decline. John, in fact, said in his letter to the church, if you want to check it out, it's chapter 2 of Revelation, verse 4. He said, your central problem is this, you've left your first love. And, and I know that you've been in Bible classes just like I have, and, and you've tried to isolate and diagnose the problem at Ephesus by just using that one single phrase, you've left your first love. And we know that that probably means that they had not just opened the doors, let the gates down, and anything goes doctrinally or morally, but that the vibrant spirit that once sparked in the hearts of those Christians was now dead. The last ember was beginning to wane. 
The reason for that is, if I may allow my own diagnosis, is what I call second-generation Christianity syndrome. Having been raised in the comforts of a Christian home, they settled down for the ride. They were no longer in the vanguard, in the cutting edge of the Christian movement, and the spirit to evangelize was no longer alive. They had forgotten what their mission was, was to be. And they were dying, and they were on their way to complete extinction unless something drastic happened that would avert them from that spiritual catastrophe. And historically and sadly, we know that nothing did happen to divert them from that path. And consequently, listen to me, church, the church that was once a burning fire of evangelism and dynamism in Ephesus, the church is no longer exists in the place that we now know as Ephesus. And perhaps the church today, across the board, is not growing as we ought for essentially the same reason. We've forgotten what our central and primary mission is, and it isn't just to keep house for the Lord. Rather than being fishers of men, we become keepers of the aquarium. Rather than waking up in the morning saying, how can I influence my neighbor? How can I get the gospel out? How can I point someone toward heaven? How can I implant the hope that I have in my heart in someone else that I care about or maybe at this moment someone that I don't even know. How can we be a force for evangelism right here in Montgomery, Alabama? We're rather asking the refrain, what has the church done for me lately? And when we began to look for a congregation that we want to place membership with, we began asking those questions. What kind of ministries does it have? What can they do for me? What can they do for my children? All of those are legitimate questions, folks, but they are not the number one question. The number one question is, what can I do to help the church, corporately speaking, to march with the message of Jesus Christ? And if we're not asking that question, folks, no wonder we're coming up with all the wrong answers. At ease in Zion is the way Amos expressed it. And it also explains why there's... So much infighting. Have you noticed that in our fellowship? For the simple reason, and I preached a whole sermon on this one time, if we don't fish, we fight. And if we aren't fishing for men, there isn't le anything left for God's people to do except find ways to pick at one another. And by the way, that's not unique to the 21st century. Paul, to, in the Galatian letter, said to them, be careful that you bite and devour one another, that you be not consumed. There were congregations that were just eating themselves up internally because they'd stopped fishing and they'd started fighting. And then some of us are old enough to remember that meteoric growth rate that identified Churches of Christ immediately after World War II. When those GIs came home from foreign lands and saw that there was a world out there that needed to be evangelized, they came home with a spirit of evangelism and they said, we need, we need to get to work right here in the United States because the light that shines the farthest is the light that shines the brightest at home. Before we can carry the gospel to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world, we've got to start right here with our Jerusalem. And the church began to grow because people began to talk about Jesus in the workroom, in the break room, in their families, around the kitchen table, and they began to grow and baptize and make new converts hand over fist. And we can look back at that, historically speaking, in the, the 1950s and 60s, and we can see a church that popped the buttons off of our shirt because we were the fastest growing religion in the United States. But if we've lived long enough, we've seen it devolve into a church that is at ease in Zion. Because we fail to realize that that which 
has made us great in times past must be continued, must be perpetuated for the church to remain great. And by great, I mean as defined by God's definition. Furthermore, one brother in our fellowship has observed that, and I quote, perhaps the greatest threat to the church at the end of the 20th and the beginning of the 21st century is secularization. Let me define my term before we go any farther with that thought. Webster defines secular as of or relating to the worldly or temporal concerns, not overtly or specifically religious. And the term secularism is defined as indifference to or rejection or exclusion of religion and religious considerations. Now, you see what's going on in our our culture, in our world, and how that Christ and Christianity in particular have been foisted out of the public arena. And we know that secularism is taking place in our country But my point is, has it taken place among the people of God? Are are we allowing that spirit of secularism to also influence us in such a way that we are more like the world than the world is becoming like the church? Under that same heading, Baker's Theological Dictionary, and I know that sounds very dull and very boring, but stay with me for a moment. I want to give you the definition because I think it really makes my point for me. Today, secularism is the integration of life around the spirit of a specific age rather than around God. It's living as if the material order were supreme and as if God did not even exist. Secularism places the emphasis on temporal social enjoyment rather than on eternal spiritual values. End quote. That sounds exactly like the church that I know. Secularization is not being forced upon the church by outside forces, folks. It's coming from within. It seems that a matter of the church gradually absorbing the spirit of the age and forgetting its mission and its main purpose under Christ. That is, we've largely forgotten what the church is for and what it is that Christ wants us to be doing. As far back as January of 1987, what would that be, 31 years ago? I hate doing math in the pulpit. 31 years, if I, if I have calculated that correctly. Michael Weed, in an editorial article in Christian Chronicle, said that many church leaders are actually cooperating with and even accelerating the process of secularization in the church. And then he gives eight hallmarks, eight identifiers that he used in that article to identify whether or not that really is true in the congregation of which we are part. I have that in front of me. If I had more time, I would walk through all of those, but I know what time it is. My point here is that Satan was never able to destroy the early church by employing the forces from without the church. If you don't believe that, just reread Revelation chapter 12, verses 2 through 11 in particular. He was not able to do it. He was, however able to swallow up the church by absorbing God's people into the pagan culture of Rome so that they became more and more like the people around them rather than influencing the people around them to be what God wanted them to be. You know that statement, that adage that we've heard all of our lives, when in Rome, do as the Romans do, came to be taken very seriously by many of God's people. And they absorb the spirit of their age. Secondly, the abandonment of biblical morality characterizes a church that is at ease in Zion. Every morning the man would pause in front of the watchmaker's shop. He would gaze at the large clock in the window and he would set his watch by that clock in the window and he would walk on. Every day at noon, the watchmaker would go to that very same clock in the display window and set it precisely by the blowing of the whistle at the local factory at noontime. 
After many years had passed, the watchmaker stopped the man one day and complimented him on his faithful commitment to keeping the correct time. And his response was, oh, I have to be correct, said the man. You see, I'm the one responsible for blowing the noon whistle down at the local factory. You see what happened there, right? Without knowing it, both of them were using the other as the standard. Paul said something about that in his second letter to the Corinthians, chapter 10, verse 12. Here's how it goes. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. You see, Paul said the, the proper measuring stick of spiritual evaluation in your life and in mine is not to see how much better you are than someone else who may be sitting on the same pew, or certainly not to compare yourself to the world out there that makes no claims to being committed to and living for Jesus. But Paul just said it's never a good idea to compare ourselves among ourselves because he said they that do that, they, they're not wise. I'm, I'm, the lesson here is I'm not approved of God just because I might be more moral than the old boy sitting at the other end of the pew. Romans 14, 12 says, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So the day of judgment, folks, is not going to be comparison day. It isn't going to be, well, you didn't do a very good job living the Christian life or walking the Christian walk, but you're a lot better than this segment of people over here, and so I'm going to let you go to heaven. That's not what the day of judgment is going to be. I am going to stand before God and be judged as an individual as if I were the only person who had ever lived, and so will you be unwittingly perhaps we've forgotten the standard of moral behavior set forth in scripture and as a result in many churches almost anything goes folks we are debating things in our churches right now that I never in my wildest dream ever thought would be sources of contention among God's people can this lifestyle be justified? Some will say, absolutely. We need to love everybody. Will you define for me what love really is? Biblically speaking, and you might, I might be willing to concede that point. But we need to love folks. But that doesn't mean that we leave them where they are. It means that we draw them out of sin just as someone was kind enough and compassionate enough and merciful enough to share with us the good news and pull us out of the mire of sin as well. And we need to have that same compassion. But that doesn't mean that we've got to tolerate everything. I know that toleration, tolerance is, is the buzzword, especially in American culture right now. But it can't be among God's people if we're going to survive. And if we're going to be a force for evangelism as opposed to a field of evangelism, it's become increasingly difficult to distinguish the church from the world anymore. We've allowed ourselves to be poured into the world's mold, and it seems to fit nice and comfortable. Thank you very much. Alvin Toffler has written that we're a society with value vertigo. When I read that, that kind of caught my eye because that was a different way of saying it. But really what he's talking about is a, a nation that is morally out of balance. How any, can anybody watch the news or read the newspaper and argue with that? We have value vertigo in the United States of America right now. And it's very easy for God's people to back off, to concede the point. Let's ameliorate our message so that it is not so offensive. You can't do that and change the world. 
And that doesn't mean that we'll use the gospel as a club to hit people over the head. It, we don't need to be preaching the truth if we're not preaching the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15. But we need to make sure that we are preaching and teaching and getting the message out in love, but making sure that it is, in fact, the truth that God wants the world to have and that the world so desperately needs to have. Alexander Solzhenitsyn says that we've lost the noble quality of moral courage in our nation, that quality which once made us great. Now we seem, he said, to revel in our immorality. Who can argue with that? Where then do we look for the moral absolutes, for the values that enable us to distinguish what's right from wrong, the, the essential from the dispensable, the primary from the trivial? Where can we find a reliable, unchanging standard by which to evaluate our behavior? If we look solely to one another as the standard, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, then like the watchmaker and like the whistleblower at the local factory, we're in big trouble. We are in big trouble because we can always find someone that we're better than. But if we look to God and to his word, we may just find our, our way past moral relativism to moral courage, and we may shake ourselves out of the ease at Zion that has so captivated us. Otherwise, we become the same brand of hypocrites that the Jews had become because Paul said in Romans 2, 21 through 24, they professed one thing, but they practiced another. Here's another quick characteristic of a church that is at ease in Zion. Those who are at ease in Zion have forgotten spiritual meat. Listen to Isaiah 30. As Isaiah was again trying to call God's people of his day back to the right way, verses 8 through 10, go now, write, write it before them on a tablet. I like that. I can remember growing up, there would be times when dad would give me an assignment or a job list, something that needed to be accomplished, especially something that had some sense of urgency about it. And he would say, now, Rando, do, do, do you understand what I'm saying needs to be done? Yes, sir, I do. Write it down. I, I want to see you write it down. And that's exactly what Isaiah said to his people. Write it before them on a tablet, note it on a scroll, that it may be for time to come forever and ever, that this is a rebellious people lying children, children who will not hear, did you get that? Who will not hear the word of the Lord, who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us right things, speak to us smooth things, prophesy deceits. We want something that will tickle our ears. We want something that will give the ring of tolerance about it. We want something that we can go ahead and pillow our heads at night and be able to rest comfortably because you have not offended anybody. No, he said, you need to hear the word of God again. And if it offends you, hopefully it will offend you right through the gates of heaven. Because you need to change. You must change if you're going to be God's people, was Isaiah's message in the long ago. What about Amos? Let's go a few chapters later. Chapter 8 of Amos, verse 11. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will send a famine to the land, not a famine of bread nor a thirst for water, but of the hearing of the words of the Lord. Amos is saying, you're complaining because I'm preaching to you, because I'm giving you God's word. There's going to come a time when you would love to hear just a one-point sermon. There's going to be a famine in the land where you'll not hear God's word spoken for years to come. I read a story that happened supposedly according to the fable some 700 years ago. A man with the unlikely name of Nazreddin Hoka had a donkey that was eating him out of house and home. It was a beast of burden. It was necessary for his farming uh, occupation, and so he was reluctant to get rid of the donkey. But it seemed like it was eating up all of its profits. Just a ferocious, 
donkey that loved to eat. And so he wondered if, follow the logic now, or perhaps I should say the illogic, that if he could gradually, gradually cut down the amount of food that he was having to feed that donkey on a daily basis, if eventually over the course of time the donkey might be able to get by on no food at all. Now I'm going to let that kind of sit and marinate for a moment. We're going to train this donkey to not eat. And this experiment continued for several weeks, but a few days after all the food had stopped, not surprisingly, the donkey died. According to the story, the owner was embarrassed and sad. And as Redden Hoka was heard to say, what a pity that he died when he was just getting accustomed to hunger. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it really isn't a whole lot different from the way some Christians think and live. They discontinue regular daily Bible study. I mean, this book is a coaster for their tea glass, but that's about it. It is not opened with any regularity. Wednesday night becomes like any other night of the week, time for rest and relaxation, time to prepare for the next day, to get the kids ready for school, whatever. The Bible study hour on Sunday morning is just too early to get out especially in the cold winter months. And after all, Sunday morning is the only time that some of us who work for a living can sleep in. And finally, people who think like that quit attending altogether, and we wonder sometimes out loud, I wonder what happened to them all of a sudden, when in reality it was not a sudden thing at all. They had been reducing their spiritual diet for a long, long time. And it was not a sudden death. I saw an interview with a rock star, and I mean really a guy who had been on the scene for some 40 years on one of the 3,000 channels I get on my TV set. But he was saying, like most people, I was not an overnight success. I was only discovered overnight, he said. But I put 25 years into the business before I got discovered by the American people and began to sell my records. And that's how it happens at the end, too. We, we typically do not die spiritually overnight. We do not go to bed as faithful children of God, devoted to his word, with a vital and important and ongoing prayer life where we're constantly communicating to God, and then we wake up as an apostate, deciding it's not worth it. I'm walking away. I'm going to lay my cross down. I'm going to lay my shield down. I'm going to lay my sword down, and I'm going to walk away from the field of battle never to return. That's not the way it happens. We cut back on our spiritual food and our corporate worship and the Bible study that's offered and in our own private Bible study and our prayer time is, is cut down, it's reduced. It wasn't a sudden thing at all. We've been cutting down on the spiritual food for quite some time and they died just when it seems that they were getting accustomed to their hunger. Now the solution to this at ease in Zion is simple but tough. It really is composed of three very simple items. Number one, it means waking up spiritually, as Paul mandated in Ephesians 5, 14. Awake thou that sleeps and arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. So we need to wake up. There needs to be a spiritual wake-up call. Second, it means, it means repenting and doing those things that we were doing when we were on fire for the Lord. And when we did have that spiritual fervor burning within us, at the beginning of the lesson we talked about the Ephesus congregation, we described 
what John, the revelator, said about them. It's really the words of the Lord coming through John's pen when he said, You have left your first love. And that, of course, is uh, verse 4 of Revelation chapter 2. And, and then, thankfully, John gives us the answer and gave them the answer to their having left their first love in the very next verse. Verse 5, Revelation 2, reads like this. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. I hope you got that. I've used that many times in sermons on marriage because it will cure a, a troubled marriage as well. If you're no longer in love with that person that you vowed your life to and for some years ago, then what you need to do is to remember wherefore from where you've come. Remember what it was like when you really were in love with that person and when you vowed to, use that to, to, to live with them as a life companion, commit your life and dedicate yourself to them. And then you go back and you start doing those things that you were doing when you were in love and you've got God's guarantee that you will then have that passion and that love that you want to have in your life and in your marriage. But the primary application is spiritual in nature. What worked for Ephesus will work for God's people today. And the third and the final thing is that we need to have a spirit of evangelism about us because that's the mission of the Lord's church. And if that, if that is not correct, then I am doing the wrong thing. And I haven't read this book correctly. I have somehow misinterpreted the owner's manual because I thought... God told us, even if you never leave Jerusalem, go preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and repents will be saved. Go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, that is, to give deference to all things whatsoever I've commanded you. It's still right here in the book. And I hope we all sing the song of invitation, the closing song, and then where our minds and our hearts are in it when we have the closing prayer verbalized on our behalf. But I, I, I really hope that we'll go home and toss and turn about this. I hope that we will allow this to be a seed planted in our hearts for each of us as individual Christians to identify what is it that I, not just the university church, that I need to be doing to make a difference in this world starting right here in the community in which I exist. Because if we don't answer that question and if we don't answer it correctly, we're just going to keep on coming in and turning on the lights and singing some beautiful songs and then going home. And nothing will change. Are we a force for evangelism? Are we a field of evangelism? I want to end with the words of Peter because this really whole lesson obviously has been a cautionary tale. As Peter begins in his second and final letter to describe the day of the Lord, and he calls it a day of reckoning. But the day of the Lord will come, this is chapter 3, 2 Peter, verses 10 and 11. The day of the Lord will come as a thief of the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, both of the, the earth and the works that are there in it will be burned up. Therefore, here's what we are to conclude from the, that reality, that fact. The Lord is coming with his big ring of keys, and he is saying at some point in the future, gentlemen, it is closing time. 
And everything that we have worked for, our houses, our cars, all the material possessions will be burned up just like that. Verse 11, here is the application. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conduct and godliness? Peter's saying, I'm wasting ink if this doesn't change us, if this doesn't make us prepared for the day of the Lord. I think back in the ancient world, and I mean all the way back to the beginning of the history of the human family. Noah preached for well over a hundred years as he was building that gopher wood condo out in his backyard. The day came for Noah and his good family to get on board that ark and for the rain to come. Don't you know there had to be people that had been watching Noah building that ark, had been hearing his message, had been hearing him call them to repentance, and if you'll repent and get right with God, then you can get on board the ark as well. And, and, and when that final day came and Noah and his family got on board the ark, surely there had to be some reasonable people that were surrounding them and watching that happen who, who were asking themselves, is this true? Is it really going to rain? Is there really going to be universal flood? And do I need to get on board the ark at this moment in my life? But we know that the answer in their hearts and their minds, if they ever did ask that question, was no. And the Bible says that when the door of that ark was shut by the hand of God himself and the world perished in an inundation of water, now you have tonight the opportunity to obey and get right with God. But someday that door of opportunity will be shut, never to be opened again. And I'll guarantee you this. If that comes about in your life and you die unprepared to meet God, you would give all the gold in Fort Knox for the singing of one more verse of an invitation song. This is your moment. Don't be deceived. Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?